somebody called me up and I said, yeah, I, I'm gonna be counsel for George Zimmerman. And I'm not exaggerating because we have the pictures. Within a half an hour, there were 75 vehicles up and down my little street, about a dozen uh, satellite trucks, and about a hundred reporters that made a semicircle around the front door. That's nationally acclaimed defense attorney, Mark O'Mara. It blew up from day one and literally from that day until about a week after the trial, so that's almost two years, there was never less than a dozen people outside of my office, normally 20 to 30. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Mark O'Mara became a household name in 2012 when he signed on as a defense attorney for the infamous George Zimmerman. This career-defining case captured the attention of millions. I sat down with Mark to talk about the pressures of being a lawyer thrust into the public eye and how that challenge drove him to succeed. That was me at my best. Those two years, eight, 20 months, every day, every hour of every day, I was at my best. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. So this is undoubtedly going to be a very controversial podcast. And chances are, I mean, it, it seems like, have you done an interview, I'm just curious, in the last several years where the Zimmerman and the Zimmerman case has not come up? My wife, Jen, interviewed me a couple of times about what we're having for dinner. Other than that, no. Every time, you know, how do you not connect me to a case that literally not only completely changed my career, but really changed the course of sort of criminal justice in America, not making it more than it was, but it really was a case that focused a lot of people. So, no, we've talked about it many, many times. In a way, Mark's career can be divided into two halves, before Zimmerman and after Zimmerman. But to understand the foundation of Mark's drive as an attorney, and perhaps the motivations behind his decision to take on a high-profile case like this, I wanted to go back to where it all began. Well, you know, it's strange because the actual seed, the, the first time I can remember the seed that was planted was I was about 11 years old, and an uncle who is a, a, a great guy and a I, I, good friend of the family, good member of the family, asked me what I wanted to be. And being a good Irish Catholic, I said, I want to be a priest, because you have to say that, uh, and I want to be a lawyer. And I think back then, the reason why being a lawyer meant a lot to me was because of somebody and then what I perceived lawyers to be. The somebody was a guy by the name of uh, Tom Thomas Dillon, who was a lawyer up in New York where I grew up. My dad was president of the Fire Officers Union in New York City. This is back in the late 60s and early 70s. And of course, as the president of that union, there'd be legal problems that came up, whatever they may be, including he and, and John Lindsay, who was the mayor back then, sort of went at it about 
protection for cops, protection for law enforcement and all that. But anyway, Tom Dillon would always help my dad out. There'd be an issue, there'd be representation necessary, and Tom would do it. And I remember the number of times meeting Tom, but also how dad reacted to Tom and Tom's perspective on how to help things out. So in one sense, I blame or thank this guy, Tom Dillon, who was a lawyer who really helped out my dad. And of course, I adored my dad, as most people adore their, their parents. So the idea that somebody was out there to help him. So that was the person. And then the perspective, I guess, was I've always perceived lawyers to be intelligent, you know, and um, aware, respectful. They were respected as well. And they helped people. You know, they took a situation like with Tom Dillon and my dad, took a, a situation, I guess like a doctor would, and fix it. So I really liked that idea. And so I will tell you that what I did was um, with both of those seeds in my mind of maybe being a priest and maybe being a lawyer, I actually went to seminary school. Not many people know this, but I went to seminary school, made it about six weeks, realized that was not the path. Um, that I could take. And there's stories about that as well. And ended up getting more and more interested in the law and did it through college, loved it in college, and uh, obviously law school as a prosecutor and then doing criminal defense. So, Mark, in, in your firm, you practice both criminal defense and family law. I mean, if you're looking at it from the outside, it's like, here's a person that loves to deal with conflict. What drove you to those two practice areas? Well, I would tell you, First, that got me into criminal, because when I was in law school, I wanted to do nothing but personal injury work. And the reason why is because I worked for a firm in college that did PI work. And this is back in the 80s. So we're talking the PI lawyers had their own planes and they had their bar set up in the corner. It was just that type of sort of 80s extravagant lifestyle. And I really liked that idea. It was my exposure. Into law school, I was going to still do that. But a buddy of mine who was a roommate at the time, third year law school, got an internship with the state attorney's office. And literally, as a law student, he was trying cases. And I went to see a couple of them, and it was game over. The bug had bit, and I had to get into a courtroom. So I gave up getting becoming a PI lawyer, uh, or else maybe it would have been O'Mara and O'Mara instead of Morgan and Morgan, because I'd have kicked John's butt if I really tried. But then um, I became a prosecutor for about two and a half years, did that, loved it, and then kept active in criminal defense. Gotcha. So from that standpoint, I mean, it seems like everything that you, you and I have discussed just over the last several years, like you love being in the courtroom. It's almost like that it creates a sense of calm for you. Why, why do you feel that is? You know, there are certain people... It's how people perceive or how they react to times of stress. Look, this COVID-19 craziness has put everyone back a step or two, right? You, have, you get knocked back on your heels. How do you deal with this? What do you do? What do you do with your family? How do you keep them safe? What do you do with your, your friendships? How do you keep friendships safe even when you can't see people? And your business, certainly, how do you keep that safe? And, and it's how you respond to that stress. And, and I will tell you, if you told me that I could make my hourly rate or make my salary staring at a wall, a stressless situation, it would drive me crazy. I mean, there are people who like non-stress. I wake up, I grow, I excel in times of high stress. And though I don't perceive it to be stressful walking into a courtroom, other people perceive it to be very stressful. To me, I walk into a courtroom, that's my nirvana. It's almost like, you know, I 
probably can't walk into an operating room. I can't draw a straight line, so I can't be an artist. But you open up the door to a courtroom, and that's where all of my cylinders start hitting properly, and every neuron is focused on what's happening in that courtroom. Now, I don't know if you put this out into the universe or what, but just to see, let's stress test the level of stress that one can manage, because it seems like in, in 2012, when the Zimmerman case happened, if you had to put a microcosm for like the level of stress that a trial lawyer could experience just from the public attention, from what was happening in the level of scrutiny that you were receiving, I guess my first question is, you know, as we talk about the case, how did this even come your way? Like, how, you know, basically like you were going about your day and then how did this even happen? So literally I was going about my day because I was in the middle of a hearing over in Seminole County when I got a call and it was from George Zimmerman. And it turns out that George Zimmerman was looking for a lawyer to replace the two lawyers who he had. And I will tell you not to hassle those who preceded me. Those two lawyers were handling the case in a very aggressive um, manner, uh, really focusing on Trayvon, completely inappropriate just from a strategic standpoint, not to mention that you're talking about a 17-year-old kid who lost his life. But so George came to me looking for a new lawyer. I was in the middle of a hearing. I said I would call back. I called Jen, my wife, first, because at that point it had not become what it eventually became, but it was already locally sort of high profile, you know, some media attention on it, but not much. Uh, so I called Jen, then I called my staff, because back then I had three, four staff members, and I knew that it was going to be an undertaking. And also that it wasn't going to be uh, financially productive at all, because he didn't have any money. Got the okay from Jen and got the okay from the staff, talked to him that night. It was an interesting case, because it sort of met some of my um, qualities, criminal defense, obviously, self-defense and involving a death, which just means it's the higher end of criminal law. And I had done a lot of work with the media before that, or again, what used to be called a lot of work with the media before that, with Casey Anthony and a bunch of other um, stations and some national exposure. So that part fit really well. And um, it was just a very intriguing case. And I also didn't like well, I wasn't sure, but I didn't like that the lawyers that were handling it before were just doing it in a way that I thought was really dangerous. What was the decision-making process around like whether you even get involved? Like, because you know, you mentioned there was there was really not any financial gain for it. They probably represented. I mean, it could have been significant downside, and there's no way I'm sure you could have anticipated what it would balloon up, you know, into. So, I guess, how did you decide that? Okay, you you actually did want to get involved. Again, part of it is what we talked about a little while ago, the idea that you come to me, Michael, and say, Mark, I want you to handle this case. And you say, you know, it's a run-of-the-mill DUI. It's like, well, no real interest. Tell me that it includes very significant issues, maybe involving a death. Tell me that there are mental health issues, for example, another area that strangely I sort of focus on because so much mental health concerns impact the criminal justice system. I mean, that's the cream of the crop for criminal defense lawyers. So the idea of looking at this and saying it has a lot of factors involved uh, in, you know, the unfortunate death, the media, but as importantly for me is the racial component to it. Because don't forget, before it blew up, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a minute, but before it blew up, when I got involved in the case, it had local, and it was already old white guy kills black kid. 
And that was sort of the presentation. And quite honestly, I've been involved in the criminal justice system at that point for almost 30 years. And I've handled a lot of matters, cases and clients, where I know how biased the criminal justice system is against young black males. So the idea of getting involved in one where that is now an issue became much, much more of one. But it was an issue to consider back then. It just sort of fit my personality and my professional personality. So in actually now deciding what we're going to do with the decision making, what I knew was it was going to take a lot of work, a lot of time, and that there was going to be some negative blowback. Wasn't sure, sure the level of what yet, but I knew that there was just going to be, it was, it already was controversial. Uh, and then the question was, I think I'm pretty good at handling controversy. So it just really seemed to fit. So I will tell you, Though I got Jen's permission and I had to get my staff's buy-in, when that call came, it just fit It fit me perfectly. Now, leading up to this, before you decided to take on the case, did anyone try to talk you out of this? Yeah. Yeah, a number of people did because, and again, I have sort of my confidence. When I you know, talked to Jen, it wasn't just, Jen, I'm doing this, or it wasn't just, Mark, go do this. I mean, we had to have a legitimate conversation because this was going to impact our personal life a lot financially, obviously, but also just the privacy of it. You know, we knew that we were going to be out there in the public eye. And, you know, had I done what these other lawyers had done, you can hold yourself up to ridicule. Let me tell you something. You ridicule yourself or your privacy or your practice in national TV, and it doesn't go away. So there was, um, they were lengthy conversations, particularly with Jen, to decide that we were willing to um, take on something that we knew was going to have a lot of impact and potentially some negative. As this starts to pick up, you, you know, you take on the case and there's getting more and more media attention. I know you mentioned to me that you'd received over 2,500 legitimate threats against your office when, when this case was going on. Talk me through that in terms of what was that like, quite frankly, and perhaps what type of impact did it have? The day that I said that I was representing him, he was coming into town to be arrested. He didn't know that, but I did. So I told him that. I announced it in effect. Somebody called me up and I said, yeah, I, I'm going to be counsel for George Zimmerman. And I'm not exaggerating because we have the pictures. Within a half an hour, there were 75 vehicles up and down my little street, about a dozen uh, satellite trucks and about 100 reporters that made a semicircle around the front door. I had two little office buildings back then. They looked like little craftsmen's cottages and, and literally within a half hour. So that was the explosion that happened at that point. Of course, that was the day that they um, indicted him or charged him with second degree murder. So it didn't just build up, it blew up from day one. And literally from that day until about a week after the trial, so that's almost two years, there was never less than a dozen people outside of my office, normally 20 to 30. And I'm talking like every day, most days. So a lot of what's been said, Mark, about from, about you in the media is that you handled this case very even-handed. So as this is taking place over the course of you know two years, why do you feel? I know you mentioned this earlier, but like why do you feel like you didn't mess up? Because I'm sure there were several opportunities to mess up. 
yeah, there were opportunities given to me on a daily basis to, to mess up. You know, part of it is, and there's so much to get into, but, you know, when you have that throng of reporters, you know, half of them are legitimate journalists. But don't forget, this is the day of cell phones, and everybody can stick a cell phone in your face and say something really obnoxious to you, hoping to get a response. So I had to maintain that type of a chill or a calm attitude and realize that if I did say something that would either get me in trouble with a judge, very easy, get me in trouble with the black community, which I had to be extraordinarily sensitized to, because don't forget, I'm a criminal defense attorney. That's what I do for a living, meaning I represent a lot of young black males in the criminal justice system. And I say that because I'm very sensitized to those issues and to the biases that exist in the criminal justice system. So I had to be very aware of what the um, Martin family was going through, and not just the Martin family as those individuals, but the black community, the African-American community, focused on the Zimmerman case as being the poster child case for that type of bias in the criminal justice system. The, the facts didn't really match, but the passion was there in that community, and we had to be very aware and careful of that. As the press coverage and media spotlight on the Zimmerman trial grew, all eyes were on Mark. The intense criticism from the public, the media, and even the legal community presented a series of challenges. His firm and his family received considerable criticism that escalated into credible threats. Many lawyers in the legal community questioned how he could even represent someone like George Zimmerman. And to top it off, the publicity around the case meant that his client's fate risked being decided in a trial by media. I wondered, how did it feel to be in the eye of the storm? Getting caught up in people's passion that they, this, this case polarized the entire country. Everyone knows that. You either hated George Zimmerman because he was a racist murderer, or you loved George Zimmerman because he protected himself and he used a, a gun to do it. So you have the Second Amendment advocates there. Or, you know, you have the other end of the spectrum, the white racists who come in and go, thank God you killed him. Um, so you had this whole little splintering of the country over this case and um, how to navigate that. I mean, you could not barely imagine some of the correspondence we got. In addition, like we briefly talked about the 2,500 truly legitimate threats, there were thousands of letters that come in, supporting letters uh, and also letters that tell us, you know, you'll never see tomorrow. So it, there was it, it was just a, trying to keep balance, I guess is the best way to say it, trying to keep a, a chill perspective on it. And also dealing, like you say, with other you know, fellow lawyers. I was amazed that to me, lawyers are lawyers. We know the system, we know what to do, we know what to do, we take sides, we're gladiators. But I was sort of amazed that there were a number of lawyers who you know, would talk to me and go, like you say, how could you possibly? And I wanna to say to them, do you know what I do? Do you know what a criminal defense attorney does? How dare you ask that question if you know what a criminal defense attorney does, if you know what a lawyer does? So why do you feel that there is that divide? Let's say even within the trial lawyer community, like why is it that even there it is so polarized? Because I understand it, let's say, in, in the general public, in the media, but amongst trial lawyers, it seems like they were equally polarized. I think they were blinded by their own prejudices and biases and passion. Uh, you know, give them credit that it was passion as well. You know, we're like doctors and a doctor, you can't sit back and go, oh my God, look at all the blood. 
right? You know, that's not what doctors can focus on. What we focus on, what doctors focus on is fixing the problem. What lawyers focus on is fixing the problem. I was sort of chagrined a little bit or upset that some of the, my brethren uh, would sort of take this tact, like, you know, how could you? Uh, and then, of course, you have the ones saying, oh, I know why you're doing it. You're just doing it for the celebrity. You're just doing, you don't care about him. You only care about yourself. And it's like, all right, whatever. Got to move on. Busy. So as we continue to pile it on, what about the challenges that you faced personally? I mean, I imagine that with all this attention, with all of these threats, even with the impact that it made on you and your family. Yeah, that was a part that I didn't realize was going to be what it turned out to be. I would like to say that even if I knew what it was going to be, that I would still have done this. But I got to tell you, it would have been a much more difficult decision because, again, when I got involved, it had not blown up right as I got involved with the with his arrest and my entry into the case. It went ballistic. And I mean that in the true nature of the term. And it never slowed down. So I couldn't go anywhere without being sort of not attacked, but approached, um, you know, how, what about this? What about that? Thank you. How dare you go to hell? Whatever it might be. And I don't mind that for me because, again, I do this for a living. I was really worried about my family, about Jen and also my staff, because, you know, that little office we had didn't have, you know, metal doors in front of it. You want to throw something through a window or something like that. It's right there. And so there was a lot of fear about what to do because we couldn't control it. Again, even with those 2,500 legitimate threats, you don't know if it's somebody who is, you know, in Kansas in a basement with a, in a bathroom borrowing a laptop going, die you, or if it's literally somebody who's got a nine millimeter down the street. That can sort of just, you know, make it more difficult to go to sleep at night. But no, it, it was very, it was very bizarre, uh, very difficult very worried about what those people around me might have negative effect on them. Were there times just during the, the, during this case where you're just like, you know what, I don't really need this. Let me tap out of this, right? Like, were there times you consider just getting out of there? No, there's just, no, I, I got to tell you, I'm not saying this like, you know, patting myself on the shoulder. No, this was a case that I loved when I got involved in it. And as it got let's call it crazier, as it got much more almost bizarre. Quite honestly, it fed into exactly what I'm good at. You know, the media craziness, for example. And again, I learned along the way for those two years, and this sounds really egoist, and I do not mean it this way. That was a very difficult case to navigate from a media perspective. And somehow, with the grace of God and the genes of my family, somehow I did it. But I have seen other people since, other people before, just destroy and screw up cases. And thank the good Lord, we didn't do it on this one um, because we were able to sort of keep that balance. But yeah, it was uh, it, it was a crazy, crazy time, but I never would have changed a day of it. And I mean, you know, I didn't see Jen um, for a week at a time. We'd see each other on the weekends normally for a day, but I would leave at seven. I'd get home after 11 p.m. Because I had, a, don't forget, I was not only doing a full-time 40 hours, whatever it was on Zimmerman, I had to keep my practice alive because my practice is what was paying to keep my staff there and all that. So no, this was never ending. I think I took, I think it was four days overall off during those 20, 22 months or whatever. During my conversation with Mark, I wondered, 
What kept him going through the intense experience of representing such a polarizing figure in a heavily scrutinized case for years? And at the end of it, how did he feel? Worn down, traumatized by the experience, or relieved that it was over? I was so energized. And, and I would tell you a story, some insight. Um, Don West, who was my co-counsel, who's a great lawyer, and I, if I got in trouble, I would call Don. But the way the case sat on both of us was so different. Um, Don was very frustrated with the media a little bit, but with the judge and with the prosecutors, and the, they were really underhanded and dirty in the way they were handling us. So he was very frustrated with him. We were on, I think it was with Matt Lauer, I think it was, yeah, afterwards. And they said, they asked the question you just asked. They said, well, you know, what do you think about this and the aftermath and, you know, now that you're through it? And Don answered first. And Don said, well, you know, I can now sort of understand what people talk about when they talk about PTSD and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's talking. And as he's talking, I'm sort of looking over going, uh, OK. And Matt turned to me and, and I said, you know, with all due respect to Don, I went, these were the best two years of my life. I wouldn't change an hour of it. It was an absolute two-year adrenaline rush. That was me at my best. Those two years, eight, 20 months, every day, every hour of every day, I was at my best. And it was like being on an adrenaline buzz, being on, you know, 105 octane instead of high test. It was just perfect. We had up to eight or nine law student paralegals or, or law students working with us. The staff was energized. I, if I could bottle those two years, I wouldn't change literally an hour of it. Despite being a veteran trial attorney, there were aspects of the Zimmerman trial that really surprised Mark. Parts of the case that didn't make the papers, but in Mark's view, were fundamental to the way the case played out. I, I will tell you this, and it sounds like, you know, I, I'm a sore winner. Those prosecutors were disgusting to us and they were disgusting to the criminal justice system because they cheated and they lied and they obfuscated and they hid stuff and they never were really held accountable for that. And I think that was really disgusting because they tried very hard to convict somebody and look, Go for your conviction. I was a prosecutor. Do what you can. But the reason why lawyers have ethics is because that keeps us on the right side of the law. And they did not. They did not care about any of that. Uh, so that was one real frustration of mine. Another was, you know, the craziness that we had to deal with with all of the witnesses or make-believe witnesses or people who wanted to be witnesses and trying to vet through all of that chaff to get to some of the wheat, that took an enormous amount of time and effort. There was so much that we had to respond to. As an example, we had to have an active social media presence. For the first time in history, we had a criminal defense case where we had a Twitter account for a criminal defense case. We had a Facebook page for a criminal defense case. That is bizarre. Um, hasn't happened much since, but that was the one time. And I was in touch with the Florida bar, like daily, if not weekly, uh, making sure that I didn't do something that would make me lose my license. But, you know, that was a bizarreness to it. And I will tell you, the other thing was, and probably the most significant to me, and, and it's hard, to how to balance being an advocate 
a gladiator, which is what a, a, a lawyer is. A, you know, I'm not supposed to care about uh, the other side. I'm not supposed to care about the other witnesses. I'm not supposed to care about anything. If I represent you, Michael, then I represent exactly what you want me to do. Use all my talents to do that. Thank God we had a factual basis in this case where I could compromise that a little bit, where I could be sensitized or sensitive to the criminal justice system and more importantly, the societal perspective of this case. Because if this was handled poorly, if it was handled like maybe some other lawyers could have handled it, this thing could have blown up in the country's face more so than it did. I mean, it did a little bit. The acquittal caused a lot of blowback. But if we had done it more aggressively, and I'll give you some examples, there was a lot of information that we had about Trayvon that we affirmatively decided not to get into the courtroom. It had some relevance, uh, maybe under some perspectives, but it would have been very inflammatory and incendiary, in my opinion. Uh, we decided not to. Well, you know, had we made the decision not to be as aggressive as we otherwise could have been, and Zimmerman got convicted, should I have given up my bar card for being some idiot lawyer who's not really supposed to compromise my zealous advocacy for a societal system that I care about? Thank God we were able to thread that needle. Hell with threading the needle of dealing with the media. That needle of threading that, of presenting it in a way that tried to maintain the societal impact of this case, but still get my guy acquitted, that was my toughest job, I think. One I loved. One I loved because that type of three-dimensional chess is what I love playing. That's the real strategy stuff. But thank God that we had a factual basis for being able to do that. There's no denying that the criminal defense arena is littered with the bodies of fallen gladiators who simply couldn't take the heat. A heated courtroom, especially in a high-stakes, history-making case, is certainly not for everyone. But why did Mark feel drawn to such a controversial case? And why does he practice criminal defense the way that he does? Aggressively, wholeheartedly, and as if the very integrity of the law rests in his hands. I don't mind people saying I have a moral objection to representing this type of a case. Then don't do it. That's okay. Go do something else. But if you're going to represent somebody, if you're going to say that you're a criminal defense lawyer, how dare you not take on the tough cases? What, what in God's name are you doing here? What you're saying is, well, I'll do the possession of cocaine cases because he had it in his pocket. I'll do the DUI or I'll do this. But, you know, those other ones, let's I don't want to touch that. Well, then, I don't know, go sell cars. You know, I sort of joke. People say, what do you do for a living? And I'll say, I train prosecutors. I train cops. Oh, are you a cop yourself? No, no, no. Criminal defense lawyer. Whoa, what do you mean? I said, because look, this is the way the system works. We have this constitution. We are all bound by it. It's a very active, very dynamic document. Changes every day. Not supposed to change much, but cases interpret it. So, what I do is I make sure that if you're going to get a conviction of my client, you just go through me. And I'm going to use all of my talents, all of my intellect, all of my speaking abilities to make sure that you will only get your conviction if you do everything right. I am basically quality control for the criminal justice system. If you want to get your conviction, 
I will teach you how to do it, or more importantly, I will teach you how not to do it. And let me tell you something, I'll get up on my high horse for a minute. The reason why, Michael, you and everybody else that you know can walk around the streets and sort of do what you want, you can even speed a little bit, you can jaywalk when you want, or you can get away with stuff, you can live your life without worrying about what cops may impact you, is because people like me are out there saying, no, you cannot stop Michael's car for no good reason. I don't care if Michael has 40 pounds of cocaine in his trunk. If you break into that trunk without a warrant or without good reasons, he may be morally guilty of it. He damn well is not legally guilty of it. So everyone who wanders through and really enjoys the freedoms that they have and sit back and say, I can say this, I can walk out and say to you, Michael, on the street, I think you're a jerk. Right? Well, that's freedom of speech. That's the First Amendment. We protect that too. The Fourth Amendment, we protect you being safe. The Fifth Amendment, they cannot bring you into a room and say, tell us what you know, Michael, and start beating you with a rubber hose, which, by the way, they used to do because of the Fifth Amendment, because of lawyers like me, the Sixth Amendment. The reason why you have a lawyer like me is because the Sixth Amendment says you have the right to counsel. That didn't used to be. You know, it was only because of good lawyers went up there and said, wait a minute, that Constitution, the only way that has real effect is if you do it now. So the reason why criminal defense lawyers should exist and the reason why you should take on whatever case you're given and do it with all you got is because we're there protecting the Constitution. We are truly, as it says in the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers magazine, we are liberty's last champion. And if you don't want to do that, that's okay. Go do PI work or wills and trust or go, you know, start another dot com. Don't be a criminal defense lawyer. But if you're going to do this, you better damn well do it well. Mark has a strong sense of judgment and a passion that extends from the courtroom to the inner workings of the justice system itself. With so much direct contact with that system, he's seen firsthand the shortcomings and the systemic problems within it. I wondered how Mark's knowledge and experience influenced his decision to start his own nonprofit organization. I know the system well, and we put Band-Aids on, you know, gashing wounds in our system. And it's horrible because we are literally feeding more people. If this was a medical uh, example, we're giving people, we're not giving them the antibiotics to cure the problem. We may give them one antibiotic, that's stupid, it does nothing. In my system, in the criminal justice system, we're just not dealing with the problem. 30 to 40% of people who are in jail right now have some type of mental health concern. Now, I'm not saying, oh, just bleeding heart liberal, let them all out. It's not that, but we need to be aware and address it. There is a drug and alcohol addiction component to the criminal justice system that if we don't address and try and fix, it's never going to get better. And what I decided to focus some of my efforts and my firm's efforts on is in the juvenile system. Because I will tell you, if you don't get these juveniles woken up, and I would like to say by the time they're 15 or 16, but that's not true. By the time they're 10 or 12, if they get in the system from truancy to petty theft to breaking into something to drugs, if you don't wake them up and have some positive effect there, mentorships, use some of the neighborhood people like pastors and youth centers that are a positive influence. If you don't spend your energy there, you are literally fostering continued criminal behavior. 
One of the reasons why is because in the juvenile justice system, it is supposed to be rehabilitative and not punitive. Makes sense. We're supposed to get these kids at 10 and 12 and 13 and try and fix them. But I will tell you, I have a little bit of a concern with that. I'm on the side of rehabilitation, but we don't put money into it. But one frustration I have with the criminal justice juvenile system is we literally cannot wake our kids up. Right now, if there's a 12-year-old kid who breaks into a house twice, three times, he's going to be put on a waiting list to go into a facility that's going to be six months off. Well, and where is he going to go during those six months? Well, we can't keep him back home with mom and dad or back on the street. It is literally a revolving door. You're getting kids used to the idea that there are no consequences for their criminal actions. And then you put them in adult court where they go there with two or three prior juvenile convictions. And now all of a sudden, maybe they get woken up and you put an 18-year-old in prison for four or five years. The juvenile outreach program that we have is attempting to get to those juveniles, use some of the resources that exist, sparse as they are, uh, to try and just kick out some percentage, I would be happy with 10% of juveniles who would otherwise end up in the adult system and get them out. So that's, that's one of the programs. It's just, it just makes common sense. We're just wasting, we put so much money into the incarcerative sanctions, putting people in prison. Uh, if we took some of that money and put it into the juvenile system, we'd have less people to incarcerate. So let's briefly talk about the aftermath. You know, you've got you win a very, very difficult case that's been in the public eye for a very long time. How does your life change? Dramatically. I mean, it changed from day one with the case because literally I, I became a house. It still sounds weird to say, but I became a household name. You know, I was that lawyer. Throughout the two years, I was just that lawyer who was on TV all the time. Having won the case, which again, factually, I should have won it, quite honestly, pure facts. But then um, now I became the lawyer who won. And even as um, with whatever great response I got from that, I got the CNN contract. So I do a lot of work with CNN, uh, Court TV as well. Uh, I've been on, you know, all the networks. I've done a lot of specials for that. I, my speaking engagements, I speak probably once every month or twice a month, but I try and limit that because I still would really rather be a lawyer, <laughs> but I like speaking engagements and talking mainly to other lawyers and to younger lawyers to try and teach them and train them how to do this stuff. But yeah, it has exploded. And one chapter that I'm very happy about is that, you know, Mike Papantonio and Levin Papantonio firm, Howard Nations, Mark Lanier, a lot of those guys, uh, Keith Givens from the Cochran firm all really brought me under their wing within the um, the sub industry of mass torts, which is suing drug companies of uh, when their drugs mess up and it happens a lot. So that has been uh, an amazing chapter that would not have happened without the exposure from the Zimmerman case. So yeah, it has taken me. It's funny. It's been five years and I do not go a week used to not go a day without two or three or four people asking me if they can take their picture with me, which is sort of bizarre to me. But it's because, um, you know, that that exposure, you can't you can't buy that. If I were to say to you, Michael, OK, here's an unlimited budget. I'll hire whoever you can make me the next Mark O'Mara as far as, you know, public persona or national recognition. You can't do it. I remember talking to John Morgan 
and he got, you know, he was sort of joking. He got all, oh, Mary, I, I hate you. You suck. I spent all this money on marketing and, and people know you a hundred times better than they know me. You know, it's like, well, true. But, you know, it's just because of the nature of the uh, focus on the Zimmerman case and therefore on me. And on that note, Mark, I, I guess a more philosophical question. What do you want your legacy to be? Essentially, how do you want to be remembered? Because I know a lot of conversations now, you, you mentioned uh, Mark O'Mara. It's like, oh, Zimmerman's attorney, right? Is that how you want to be remembered? Or do you believe there's still other cases moving forward and into the future that perhaps you're not going to be defined solely by that case? Oh, no, I don't. I mean, I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. The Zimmerman event made me opened up the opportunities that I now have, again, from CNN to all the media to mass tort to much higher end cases, national cases. I've got cases pending, I think, in nine or 10 states right now. So, no, I'm not going to look that gift horse in the nose. But if I if I could write my legacy, it would be um, very hard worker who loves being a lawyer who focuses on the betterment of the system and is willing to work for it. Not too caught up in myself. I hope other people sort of believe that because I try not to be. And that I've actually left every case that I've touched better off than when I touched it, but also on my ego side of it, better off than most other lawyers could do. Because I really try hard to be really good at what I do. And, and I would love people you know, to know that, that I'm out there busting my ass um, still, people, you know, it's funny, Michael, people, I've had literally people a hundred, a thousand times come up to me and go, oh, what are you doing now? And it's like, I practice law. Oh, you're still working? Uh, yeah, no, this is what I do. This is what I do until somebody tells me I can't do it. Uh, so no, I'm not stopping. I love doing this stuff. I love looking at a case like that three-dimensional chess we talked about. That's where I love existing in that trying to figure out the best way to accomplish something. And I would love my legacy to be that, I, you know, I was fair. I kept my humanity. I looked out for everybody else um, and tried to do things right. One last thing. It's funny because I watched the movie, strangely, last night, Spike Lee's movie, Do the Right Thing, because I met him a couple months ago. And that was an interesting meeting because obviously his perspective on life and Zimmerman is different. So anyway, so I, I watched the movie again last night and it really hit me. You know, I want people to think, you know, I did the right thing. What was, I mean, looking back at this, what was the, the biggest lesson that you learned from this experience? It is so easy to get caught up in ego and celebrity and do not. It will destroy you. It, it, it makes you artificial. That's not really good. Uh, and in the same sense, you got to keep your balance. You know, you got to keep, you have to have that internal navigation system, that rudder that keeps you on track. And part of it is um, listen to those around you. And, and I'll give Jen, you know, the accolades she deserved, because not only was she an amazing spouse. Hold on. <laughs> I hate talking about her because I choke up. Um, so <clears throat> not only is she an amazing spouse during those two years that we were going through the craziness, but then the aftermath, the, the celebrity craziness, she also kept me on balance with. So I got to give accolades to her. Most influential leaders will tell you that to succeed in times of high stakes and even higher stress, you must work to keep the rest of your life in balance. So what are the habits that Mark maintains that allow him to consistently operate 
at such a high level? The problem with being a trial lawyer uh, and being any motivated industry sort of leader is you have to have a passion. You have to have a real laser focus on it. You cannot be good half the time, I don't think. But having said that, you have to balance that passion uh, with the potential for burnout and you know, with keeping that balance so that you have the wherewithal, you have the reserve tank to do it well. So you have to maintain that balance. So you have to work out. You got to take a break. You have to enjoy your family. Do not lose sight of that. You have to enjoy your friends. I don't drink a lot because I get migraines, so it's easy for me not to. But I know a lot of my brethren who deal with the stress of this with alcohol and drugs. Uh, I'll be real careful about that. That will burn you out. So, you know, you have to, you know, you just do your conversations with yourself in the morning, set your goals for the day, try not to let the world get too far into you when you're trying to accomplish something and keep that focus, you know, because here's the thing. I could literally work here for the next I don't know, 96 hours straight, there's enough work on my desk and enough desire in my heart to work on it. And then I'll hospitalize myself, right? So you have to be able to figure out when to leave this stuff behind and when to balance yourself with the positive influences that can minimize the stress that even though I deny or ignore that it's actual stress, the people who know stress say there's not good and bad stress. It's just stress you have to be careful of. So whatever that stress is that you carry with you, you have to have a balance. You got to be able to walk. And look, you see the lake behind me? Me and Timber are out on that lake at least once a day, just walking around and chilling back just to keep that balance. And everybody should have a, a German Shepherd. Everybody should have a German Shepherd at their office. It should be mandatory. There you go. So, Mark, as we come to a close, what does being a game changer mean to you? What I think being a game changer really means is having that awareness, that focus on maintaining that laser focus you have, that energy that you want to put on it, on um, what is really important long term for your firm, for your practice and for your own self-health. And if you do that, I mean, that to me is what a game changer is, being able to take the opportunities that we all have and we all are given, but be able to sort of focus on them so that they get done in a way that really futures who you want to be a year from now or five years from now. That was Mark O'Mara, one of America's true game-changing attorneys. You know, what really stuck out to me during my discussion with Mark is that while some attorneys are focused on a quest for fame or fortune, for others... It's all about a never-ending quest to grow and learn and push the boundaries of what's possible for them. It's about building a lasting legacy and leaving a meaningful impact on the higher purpose you dedicate your life to and the way that Mark has dedicated his life to leaving the American justice system better than he found it. So Mark, thank you. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on my interview with Mark O'Mara, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be talking to one of the most dedicated and respected trucking attorneys in the legal industry, Joe Freed. Joe and I will sit down to talk about the power of hyper-specialization, how his time as a police officer influenced his decision to become an attorney, and what it takes to truly be the best. The good, the bad, and the ugly. I think that mankind's constant struggle is a struggle to keep fear and self-doubt 
and sort of worthiness at bay. And those are all versions of, the, of what I'm talking about. So, I mean, to me now, when I go, when I go into a case, there's a huge expectation that some magic's gonna happen. Man, it's a scary place to live, man. I mean, what if the magic doesn't happen? That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Oh, 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 o